0: let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray this morning that as we read your word, as we study it, as we take it in by your Holy Spirit, Father, that it would do its mighty work of bringing transformation to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you, Carl, for reading through that. I uh, sent a text out earlier this week uh, asking the elders if they would be willing to, uh, to help me begin this week and, and in weeks to come uh, in reading the scripture. I think part of them took a look at the first uh, 25, 26 verses of this and went, nope, <laughs> not this week, but uh, thank you, Carl, for being brave in doing that. In reading today's scripture, the French Enlightenment skeptic who went by the name, a pen name Voltaire, was a notorious opponent of religion and and Christianity in particular. And among the criticisms that he leveled against Christianity was this particular acidic line. It went like this: Christianity is. An initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. When I heard that, I thought, first of all, yikes. Uh, but, But secondly, I thought, you know, having been around a number of Christians over the course of my life, there's a measure of truth to that a lot of times. And that's why it stings just a little to hear it. Amen? Uh, because if you're honest, you have to admit that that's, that a lot of times Christians uh, get very excited about knowing Jesus. They become intoxicated by his word and the worship of God. They begin to experience change in their life and they begin to grow and it's exciting. And then after a while, what was once exciting kind of becomes old hat. And they're not as interested anymore about the things they once loved and found joy in. And so while it is an amazing blessing whenever God brings revival to his people, one of the central questions that surrounds revival when it comes to God's people is how to continue it beyond the initial Expression of it. How do how do we make it last? How do we make it endure in our lives beyond just a "ooh, I got really excited. I went to this conference. It was fantastic, and I was really encouraged." And then, like two weeks later, we're back in the same funk and rut that we were before. How do we make revival last? How do we ensure that our life is on an upward trend of continual growth and spirit-filled change? How do you make revival? last. We've been looking uh, in the last several weeks we've been looking not only at how how Nehemiah was used of God to restore the nation physically in terms of rebuilding the wall but also how God in the process of rebuilding the wall was able to bring about spiritual revival among his people and we saw in chapter 8 how they responded to God's word because all true revival has to begin there. We're not Interested in hearing and living out what God has to say. Then we're not much interested in living the life that God calls us to live. And so so all revival has to begin in response to the hearing and the preaching of God's word. Amen. that's why we spend so much time every week proclaiming God's word here, whether it's me or someone else. We spend time in the word because we want to respond to what God has said to us. In addition to that, we saw in chapter nine, specific confession of sin and a celebration of a relationship with God that's been renewed. Because when we look at the mirror of God's word, which is what James calls it, he says, when you look in the mirror, you ought to make adjustments. Amen, and uh, you know, women look in the mirror intently, right? They 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 want to look and make sure that everything is in alignment with how they envision it being. What is looking back at them uh, is is in conformity to their vision that they want to present to the world. Guys, we kind of look and see if we are street legal, and we go out, right? But uh, but you want to make some adjustments, and. Responding to God's word always, therefore, includes confession of sin in specific. Lord, this is what I've done. I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me for having done this. And then to renewing your relationship with God from there. And chapter 10 shows us their commitment continuing this, that this is not going to be a flash in the pan. This is not going to be for them an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. They want to continue this. And in order to continue that, you're going to have to make some specific commitments. And uh, Nehemiah chapter 10 makes it clear what, what this kind of recommitment to God and to walking in his ways involves. And the first thing is first thing that we see in verses 1 through 28 is that for revival to last, that it has to include all of God's people recommitting themselves. Now, I know that for most of us, when we come to a long list of names like Carl read to us, uh, most of which are difficult to pronounce, uh, what we often do is our eyes just kind of glaze over and we either skim it or we skip it. We go, I don't know what that's about. Moving on. All right. And but here's the deal. If we pay careful attention to what this list is and what it's there for, there are some things that it is there to teach us. And so I want to first of all draw your attention to this fact of what this list is. Uh Carl alluded to this earlier. Chapter 9, verse 38 tells us where these names are, who they are, what it's there for. And what it's there for is to indicate to us that these are the signatories of the covenant that the people of Israel, all the people of Israel, had consecrated themselves to a renewal of their covenant with God in uh, chapter 9. Well, these are the people who actually signed the covenant that they produced. They wrote it down. And these are the people who actually signed it. Uh, Now, we'll look at the terms of the covenant in a minute but for now it's important to remember that these are people making a sacred covenant with God himself bearing witness and covenants with God are a big deal in scripture they are a big deal not only because of to of the person to whom you are making your vow but they are also a big deal because of the person in whose name you're making your vow and you may not remember this, but I hope you remember that what the third commandment says. Remember there were ten? The third one is this. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord thy God, for God will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now some of you all think the third commandment is only about not using God's name as a cuss word. And it definitely includes that. But the bigger deal is that you do not use God's name in making a vow that you then do not live up to and fulfill. So, for example, when you stand in a church before God and you covenant with your wife before God that you will be faithful to her, love her, honor her, cherish her, as long as you both shall live, then son, you better keep that. You feel me? You better keep that. When you promise the same thing before God to your husband, you better live up to that. If you commit to something before uh, God, whether it's your marriage covenant, the church covenant that we have here, that every person who becomes part of the membership of Chile Bible, we covenant before God. We sign our name to it, and then we stand up here. Remember that? We stand up here and we make vows before God that we are going to, live up to what he calls us to in obedience to his word. So this is a very serious thing that they're doing. Better strive to live up to your word. And second, notice who these men are specifically. The first one at the very top of the list is Nehemiah himself. Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, the author of this book, the governor of the people of Israel, and this this re, this whole region of the trans-Euphrates, uh, he puts himself down first. He's the first person to put his John Hancock at the bottom of this covenant because it's important that it begin from the top down. And then you have Zedekiah, the next name in the list. He is probably uh, Nehemiah's personal secretary, his chief of staff, if you will, the person who's his second in command right underneath him. And then after that, you have 21 of the priests, the chief priests, 21 of them are listed. And then there are 18 Levites listed, those who assisted the priest in the worship at the temple and who uh, were dispersed among the people to instruct them in the law of God. And then there are 44 noblemen, and in addition, if you look carefully, you'll see that many of these names are the same as the list of people who built the wall earlier in the book, and also that they share the same names with people who came back from the exile in uh, uh, you know, in about 539 B.C., some 80 years prior to this. Uh, there that many of those same names have been passed down and these are the, the same families, members of the same families who came back 80 years before are still here and they're still recommitting themselves before God to his covenant. And what that points us toward is something important, that revival, in order to be lasting, has to include the leadership. It can't be an exclusively bottom-up phenomenon. It has to... They have to be leading, leaders have to lead, and they need to lead the people towards the Lord rather than away from Him. Can it ever be a problem that leadership in a church or in a nation would lead people away from God? Yes. In fact, that was Israel's, one of its biggest problems is that is that the leadership that they had was very inconsistent in its own devotion to God. And so while you had good kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah and David, you also had indifferently committed kings like Solomon. And all of the kings of Israel who were wicked men and idolaters and all of the the sons of David who were not... Walking with God, men like Manasseh, men like Ammon, men who followed the ways of the nations around them. And so it's vitally important for revival to last that your leaders be committed to walking with God. And then, in addition to that, what we see is that this is not an exhaustive list. This is just a representative list. If you look at verse 28, you'll see uh, that the scripture says, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of their God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. In other words, that there were these folks who signed it, and then there's everybody else, this much larger group of priests and Levites and and temple uh, servants and singers and gatekeepers and people, uh, in fact, whole families of people, who also likewise are committed to it, which tells us that everyone is important and that everyone's commitment is necessary for revival to outlast the initial excitement. Now, if you look, if you look on from there, you'll see. Not only that all of God's people must be committed and recommit themselves to following the Lord, but what they must commit themselves to. And that's, uh, there's two things. First of all, to renewed holiness, and secondly, to God honoring worship. And renewed holiness is what we see in verses 29 to 31. Uh, All three of these verses, if you look at them, include a specific vow. In verse 29, we read that all of the people listed and described in verses 1 to 28 vow before God with both an oath and a curse to obeying God's commandments. What does that mean? Well, basically what it means is that they swore to do this and asked God to punish them if they didn't live up to their vows and to obey what God's word says. Now, Let me be very clear here. As new covenant people, as people who uh, walk with God uh, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who have a better method of obedience and a better way of relating to God than through the law of sin and death, uh, we should never have our obedience to God, ideally, motivated by fear of punishment. What should motivate us is that we have reciprocal love toward our loving father who sent his son to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins and raised him from the dead to give us new life. And out of, out of love for him, we ought to obey him. But that doesn't mean that our loving father never disciplines his children when they rebel against him. Amen? Hebrews chapter 12 says that God disciplines those he loves and he chastises every son he receives. And so it doesn't mean that it, that just because we are new covenant people that we do not have to obey God. Amen? That well... I'm saved and I'm kept secure by God's love for me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. No, that's not true, right? You cannot let your freak flag fly just because you are a child of God. In fact, if you are a child of God, you should desire to do the opposite. You should desire to walk with God and to follow him. And so, And so when God says, for example, that we must not steal, then we must not. When God says, uh, for example, that sexual activity must be limited solely and specifically to husbands and wives in the covenant of marriage, then we must only enjoy and unwrap that gift in that context. When God says in his word that we should pray for our leaders, no matter who they are, then we should pray for them. When God says thou shalt not commit adultery, then thou shalt not. When God says that thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not. When he says don't gossip, we don't gossip. When he says uh, make peace quickly with those whom you have offended, and we do that. Amen. These are the things that are they're not optional. God's commands are not suggestions. They're things that we commit ourselves to and that we obey. Not simply out of compulsion, but willingly as God's children whom he loves. And we have a better ability to obey God than the law provides, but that doesn't mean that our obedience should be Less, right? Instead, it means that our obedience should be better than theirs was. If we have a better covenant and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, then we should have a better level of obedience than mere outward performance of the law. In addition, in verse 30, we see that they committed themselves to maintaining a distinction between them and the world. Remember why that matters? Why it was a big deal that as part of consecrating themselves, they separated themselves from all of the foreigners around them. And and in fact, it highlights again, verse 28, those who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands. It's important that God's people be separated from the people of the lands and not intermarry with them because it was a big reason, among others, that the exile happened, that Israel and Judah, when they intermarried with those who were not believers, uh, began to adopt their practices, their immorality, their idolatry, and they became just like all the people around them. Instead of being salt and light in the world, their salt became not salty anymore, and their light went out, and they became just like the people around them. And so God sent them into exile to purify them. And so here they commit themselves, we are not going to be like all the people of all the other nations. We won't give our daughters to the people of the land. We won't take their daughters for our sons. In other words, we are not going to adopt the practices of the people of the lands. It's not their ethnicity, it's their idolatry and their immorality that was the problem. And we're not going to be like them. By the way, if you are dating an unbeliever, stop. In all seriousness, stop. What are you doing? You will have happened to you what happened to the people of Israel. Your children will grow up Do not know the Lord. Don't do that. Don't do that. There's supposed to be a distinction. Between those who are God's holy people. And those. Who are not. And it is our job. To maintain that distinction. To be salt and light. In the world not to hide our light under a bushel. And finally, in verse 31, we see them committing themselves to really resting and really trusting God for his provision. You see these Sabbath laws uh, in the Old Testament, and, and you weren't to buy grain on the Sabbath, you weren't to sell grain on the Sabbath, you weren't to travel on the Sabbath. What you were to do was to rest Now imagine that. Imagine a God so good that He says, you know what, one day a week, don't work. Just rest. You have one day a week that you are commanded by God to chill out. Think about that. What a a good God that is. And He says, look, you don't have to work, you don't have to stress, you can relax and you can trust me. And I will take care of you. And all of your striving is not going to achieve for you anyway. It is I, the Lord, who provide for you. And so one day a week, I'm going to remind you of that fact. As you rest and trust me. Now, the people of Israel often went around that. And so, you know, they would they would not sell grain themselves, but they'd buy it from some foreigner. Who was selling it? Or, you know, in the Sabbath laws they had a requirement that every seven years you had to cancel out every debt that you held against someone else. They didn't do that. Because if I don't collect my debts, well, you know, how am I going to have money? Can't do that. Can't can't cancel out valid debts. That wouldn't be that wouldn't be that wouldn't be smart. They didn't trust God to take care of them. Every seven years, they were supposed to let the land rest. And if they did, God promised that that in the sixth year, he would make their crops so abundant that they would still be eating them when they brought in the harvest from the crops in the eighth year after they hadn't sown for an entire year. But they never did that. And so God said, I'm going to send you into exile For 70 years, because for 490 years you did not keep my Sabbath years. And so the land will have its 70 Sabbaths that you did not keep. By you being exiled from it. And so here they are saying to the Lord, we are going to do what you told us to do. We're going to trust you for your provision. We're going to rest in your provision for us. We're not going to go through life like we have to grab everything we can because you only get one trip on the merry-go-round. We're going to trust you for your provision because we know you're a God who loves us. And all of these things are a recommitment from God's people to living in the way that God called them, to renewed holiness. And in the remainder of the chapter, we see them recommit themselves to God-honoring worship. And if you look at uh, verses 32 to 39, what you see is that the focus of these verses is the temple. And the reason it is, the focus is because it was the center of Israelite worship, but it was also the place that was frequently neglected because it required a tremendous commitment of time and resources from God's people. They were to bring in, first of all, once a year, a third of a shekel, which is a coin, but it had a specific weight. A specific amount of silver that they were to contribute every year for the maintenance of the temple service itself, and then on top of that, they were to also bring in the first fruits of their fruit trees and of their olive orchards and of their vineyards and of their fields and the the firstborn of all of their livestock and the uh, and then in addition to that, a tenth of all of the things that their their agricultural life produced. So a tenth of all of the produce in addition to the first fruits, in a, di- a tenth of all of their flocks and herds, all of this belonged to the Lord as well. And then there were specific regular times they were to be committed to coming to worship and being uh, being assembled with the people of God and worshiping God. And God built into their life this idea That I need to get into your time and your money. That that I'm going to set your calendar and I'm going to set your checkbook and you're going to organize the rest of your life around me and my priorities rather than we look at you and your priorities and you give me what is left, right? Right? So practically speaking, what you had to do if you were an Israelite is look at the portion of your resources and your time and say, well, all of these things belong to God, and then I'm going to schedule uh, everything else around those commitments that are already on my calendar, and I'm going to take my my total financial resources and I'm going to say, okay, well, this this chunk of them, and by the way, there were a lot of offering above and beyond 10% of everything. I'm going to take all of this and I'm going to devote it to the Lord and I live on what's left. It's a big deal. Now, again, we as New Covenant believers are not bound to this stuff. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to... There's no... There's no rule on how often you have to show up to worship. Well, it's at least this many times in this season of the year. You know, there's, there's no rules on that. But here's the reality that this, that this commitment that they're making reveals that if you want to renew your relationship with God on an ongoing way, it has to get into your time and your money. Because, as Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Amen? It will show up in your checkbook and in your calendar. And it will show up in what you start with in terms of your planning financially and time-wise. And what gets the leftover. This section closes with all of the people making multiple commitments to worshiping God in the way the Mosaic law prescribed. And I love the last line of this this section down at the end of verse 39. Do you see it? We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, brothers and sisters, y'all are my friends and I love you. And it fills my heart with joy every time that I see you here to worship God. This needs to be our commitment too. That it needs to get into our time and our money. And we're very blessed. We have abundant resources. But if God is not receiving the best of what you have to offer him, It tells you something about where your spiritual life is. And if you want to experience revival, you've got to start with giving him the best of what is yours. Your time, your money, your energy, your attention. How you start each day. How your week wraps up or begins. These things are part of ongoing Walk with God. Now, I've tried hard to make the, the application of this passage pretty obvious as we're going through. But just in case, I haven't done a good enough job with that. Let me just underline a few things that this, This few of the ways this applies to us here at Chili Bible. Well, here in the last six months or so, we have been seeing, I think, many wonderful signs of, of revival as people are gathering in worship with their brothers and sisters and many people are diving into the word every single day and they're seeking the lord in prayer every single day and then and they're jumping into studies of the bible with their brothers and sisters there are many people who are involved in disciple making there are new ministries that are starting up and there are old ones that are beginning again There are sins that have been long kept hidden and uh, held on to that are being confessed, in some cases publicly, and turned away from. God is at work. Marriages are being healed. People are making new commitments to following Christ, and they are renewing old ones. And so I praise God for all of these things, all these signs of revival in our body here. The gospel is being shared. God's spirit is alive, but in order for that to continue, to prosper, to grow, to flower, to flourish, beyond this season that we're in, and all of us from our leadership down, including everybody Whose first Sunday was last week, to everybody who's a founding member here, that we commit ourselves again to holiness and to worshiping God. Holiness means that we obey all of God's commands to us, that we maintain a distinction between us and the world in both behavior and in our marriages, in our work, in all areas of our life. Our work should be better than an unbeliever's because we are serving God in what we do. Our marriages should be better than an unbeliever's because it is God's Spirit who is alive in us, transforming us and drawing us together. Our family should be better than those of an unbeliever because we are informed and instructed by the word of God, and how to lead our families. The words that we use, the attitude that we take to those who oppose us should look more like Jesus and less like a hot take off Twitter. Amen? It should. The attitude we have, the words that we use, should be different and better than everybody else's. And holiness also means that we trust God to carry us through whatever circumstances we're in and we rest in His love. Now, that doesn't mean you have to keep the Sabbath in the way that Israel did. I personally practice something like that. I try every Sunday to devote my, my day to worshiping God and to naps. It's a wonderful way to spend a Sunday. Okay, if God blesses and it is football season, I watch football and I sleep, you know, and I worship God with His people. It's a wonderful way to spend your day, and I don't do any work. I don't do any you can ask karen i i don't I don't do anything around the house all day. I just kind of bum around, put on my pajama pants, and take a nap. It's fantastic, right. And, and and the thing is, is that I can, I can do that. Why? Because I know that God loves me. And he will take care of things even if I don't. And I can trust him and I can rest at least one day a week. Right? And so can you. Because you love him. And finally, if we want to sustain revival in our lives, we've got to renew our commitment to God-honoring worship. There is simply no substitute for joining together with God's people to praise and to thank God. There isn't. There's no substitute for it. Uh, When we gather, we need to not only praise God, we need to confess and repent of sin. We need to make our offerings. We need to hear God's word proclaimed. And we need to do so, the scripture says, even to those of us under the new covenant regularly. Let us consider to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but but we draw together, right? We, We draw together. We worship regularly with one another. I don't know if any of you have ever built a fire I built one yesterday to get rid of all the brush from the winter. We put in garden fence, and we built this little fire to get rid of all the sticks and stuff. And if you ever build one, they're 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 pretty cool, and I like doing it. But one thing that is that I have learned about them is if you separate out all the sticks from each other, pretty soon fire goes out. When you rake them all back together again. It blazes up. Same thing is true for you and me. And so we have to not only renew our commitment to holiness, but renew our commitment to one another and to worshiping God faithfully with one another. Amen? All right. Well, let's pray and then let's sing in praise to God. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God who loves us that shares with us in your word how to continue in revival, how to have our first love be the love that is ongoing for Christ all the days of our life. Father, we pray that we would respond to your word with confession and with praise to the God who loves us, and then with commitment, as we've seen in this chapter, to holiness to worship. Father, we are without any ability in ourselves to make any of this happen. But Father, by your Holy Spirit, we can indeed experience the joy of our salvation day by day by day. And Father, I pray that we would. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.